Erev Tov, good evening. Uh, this is a bittersweet moment for me because it's our last year of the winter, which means it'll be a couple of weeks until we meet next, at least in this uh, venue, for the Torah together. It's also very exciting because we're finally finishing a segment of something. It's been going on for weeks and weeks and weeks in Baruch Hashem. We're finally wrapping up this part of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's Keter Shem Tov. It's not the end of our engagement with Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. There's a whole new series after Pesach. But, Bezat Hashem, this will be the last of the Shattered Wall of Israel series, in which we discuss various uh, breaks and breaches in the Wall of Israel. I am hesitant to teach this class for one major reason. She's not here yet, but... I told this story when Rabbi uh, Dweck joined us at the Sephardi Chavua. The once professor Nechama Leibowitz was walking into the Ben Midrash to get a book. She went to go get a book, and she walked in. I guess the rabbi of the Ben Knesset was giving a class on Parashat HaShavuah, the weekly Torah portion. And the rabbi stopped. He froze. You know, Here's Professor Nechamalibowitz, an expert in uh, Torah. And all he's speaking, he pauses, and he doesn't say anything. And Professor Leibowitz, she realizes, so she turns around and says, Rabbi, please continue. B'chavot. He said, no, no, I can't. You're in the room. How can I teach when you're in the room? He said, no, really, I just came to get a book. Please don't let me disturb the shiul. He said, I want to explain to you what it's like. He said, imagine, the rabbi says, that after 120 years, I go to the next world. And the Kadosh Baruch says, please, rabbi, why don't you give us a Dvar Torah? Tell us something on the Parashat Noach. It would be so nice to be able to share with all the tzaddikim in the world, Parashat Noach. But imagine if Noach was sitting in the audience, and I'm trying to tell Noach what happened in Parashat Noach. Imagine how embarrassing that would be. He said, that's exactly the situation that I'm in right now. Uh, the Rabbanit is this family's expert in Hasidut. She just joined us right now. You see, she's right here. How can I speak about Hasidut in front of my wife, who is actually a Hasidah? That's a fantastic question. But that goes into part of why the shield is important and why we're wrapping up with this. Uh, there are still three more things in Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's list. Uh, one about the reform movement, which I feel we've discussed sufficiently at the beginning of the series. And then two more about small details of Eretz Yisrael and outside of Eretz Yisrael and discrepancies in different communities in France. For those who have ever been to my home, some of you have. Itai for sure has been there. Baruch Hashem, we have a lot of books, many, many books. And from the thousands of books that we have in my home, I would say that the vast majority of them are works of halakha, most likely Sephardic books, if I had to say, the majority of the books in my home. Not Chaz Shalom, we're not racist, so there's all kinds of books in my home. But aside from the writings of Chachmei Sfarad, the most prominent other part of our library are writings of Chasidut, books of the Hasidic movement. And why, you might ask, what do we have to do with Hasidim? Let me tell you, it comes from a few different angles. So first and foremost, I grew up, for those of you who know me, uh, I grew up in a Hasidic community. Obviously not Hasidic like you imagine, but I grew up in San Diego, part of a community that was identified as a Chabad Lubavitch community. For the better and for the worse, I got all of that experience. And part of what I was raised, not Chabad, but I was raised in that community in the, the exposure to Hasidim and Hasidut and all their stories about the Rebbe's and the Mitnagdim and the opponents of Hasidut. These things really, they were always spoken about. 
And there was a time in my life where I dedicated serious effort to the study of Hasidut. You know, different Gilgulim. Believe in them or not. And so, Baruch Hashem, a third of that library for sure is because of that. There's another third of the Hasidic library in my home, which comes from the very fact that my wife is a Hasidah. My wife was born in Borough Park to a rabbi of a Karlin stolen yeshiva. My wife grew up in the home that was uh, permeated with the teachings of Karlin and the stolen Rebbe in Yerushalayim today in Givadzev. And so a third of those books came, you know, in the Ketubah when it says that the husband brings this amount of money and the wife brings this amount of money. So over there, I probably should list that my wife brought all these books of Hasidus with her. And then the third part, and it's perhaps the most recent contribution to our Hasidic library, is what you might call the more critical side of the Hasidic movement. My wife, in finishing her PhD now, Bezalat Hashem, she'll be finished any year now. My wife's research in academia is all about suicide in the, in, in, I don't want to use the word insular communities, but in such communities, with a special emphasis on uh, Hasidic communities. In particular, the Hasidic communities of New York. And uh, I think it was the calendar year 2019, maybe close to 100 young people committed suicide in that community in New York. And my wife's research into why and how and the social aspects of those communities, the religious, the religious dimension of those communities, everything has a, the dynamics of those communities are, are complicated. And who better to shed light to academia on it than somebody who grew up in it and is today able to look at it from not just a Hasidic perspective, but also the perspective of a social worker, which my wife is. And so in my home, we have volumes and volumes and volumes of academic research into the world of Hasidut. These three types of Hasidic books are, they all need each other. They all need each other because, as the famous story goes, that a Hasidic rabbi once said that if you believe in all the stories of the Hasidim, you're a fool. But if you don't believe in any of them, then you're a heretic. And listen, I don't know if a fool is a heretic. All I can tell you is I'm not a Hasid. So I'm coming to this conversation from the outside. I'm a Sephardic rabbi. The Hasidim have been fighting with the Mitnagdim for years. Mitnagdim the Hasidim. I really, it's not my place. I don't get involved. I have enough issues in my life. I have enough problems in my life. I'm not going to solve this problem at all. Not in my lifetime. But it's important when we understand, and the whole purpose of this course has been, this series has been an emphasis on current trends in the Jewish community to understand where they come from. And I think the Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is correct in identifying this episode, a very tragic episode in Jewish history, as one of those breaches in the shattered wall of Israel. Let's look together in the writings of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. Attached to the Zoom link in whichever Google Classroom you're a part of, you should see a PDF at the bottom of the page. So if you go to the Google Classroom, you should see uh, Zoom and the Zoom invitation at the bottom should be attachments. One of those attachments should say, Keter Shem Tov. And if page is 1 to 30. The Keter Shem Tov writes on page, it's page 12 of my book, so it must be page 10 of your PDF. Am I right, Mark? You're the one who keeps track of my page numbers. It, Which one are we looking for? We're looking for the Roman numeral 12. It, yeah, ha it, it has a list. Zayin, Chet, Yud, Yud, Aleph. What page is that? Yeah? Page 10 of the PDF. Thank you. Three sections down, which says letter Tet. 
החסידים והפרושים במאה הי"ח. The Hasidim and the Perushim in the 1800s, the 18th century. Which one? It's a good question. Hasiyazot Nityazdan Edei Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov. This group of Hasidim was founded by Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov. Umisibatan, because of this movement of Hasidim, Kimat Nechleka HaYehadut Lishtem Mifladot. Because of the founding of Hasidut, the Jewish community was almost split into two completely different factions. Obviously, we're talking about the world of Ashkenaz. The effects of Hasidim and Mitnagdim in, in Sepharad, you can discuss much about it. From what I've seen from the rabbis who were Kabbalistically inclined among the Sepharadim, like the Ben Ishchai, Rabbi Eliyahu, Suleiman Mani, or even the Chida, they quoted uh, Hasidic rabbis and non-Hasidic rabbis Without, uh, without any bias. For them, they all belong to the same group of Ashkenazi rabbis. But in Europe itself, this was a raging war. So much so, that it almost brought the Jewish people to be two completely different camps of people. This word, Perushim. So you have the Hasidim and the word Perushim. Both of these words are appropriated. Tell me from where. Who are the Hasidim? We say the word Hasidim in Jewish literature. Who are we referring to? Well, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the modern sense. No, in the classic sense. No, the, the early Paris was the Hasidim Rishonim. Very good. So the Hasidim HaRishonim, or the early Hasidim, it's a, it's a level of piety. A person reaches a certain place of piety, and they're called a Hasid. To take this word and give it to a whole group of people. To be born a Hasid would be like saying that we are the doctors, and even our children are born doctors, and everyone is a doctor, and we're all lawyers, and our children are born. It's a very unusual term, Hasidim, to give to somebody who, who can't even think or talk or breathe. I mean, it's a, it's a, but Hasidim today, when you think Hasid, you think fuzzy hats and stockings and long black coats. That's probably what you think, and that's most likely uh, exactly what you're, you're thinking right now. That's the last of the group of Hasidim. The Pirushim, who are the Pirushim? Here he's referring to those who are Ashkenazi non-Hasidic Jews, or perhaps worse than non-Hasidic, uh, Ashkenazi anti-Hasidic Jews. Today, there's a different word. Pirushim, what does Pirushim mean? What term are they appropriating? Who are the original Pirushim? Very good. The Pharisees, the original Pirushim in the times of the Talmud, meaning our rabbis, the mainstream group of Judaism, both of these terms are appropriated. Meaning, both of these terms are intended, whether maliciously or not, to bring about certain feelings about them. I'm a Hasid, how can you hate me for being a Hasid? A Hasid is the highest level in Judaism. Or how can you hate me for being a Pirushim? We're all Pirushim, aren't we? We're all Pirushim. It's, it's a way to mainstream yourself by using such words. It's like when the Jewish community today likes to use words like the Torah community, the Yeshiva community. Which Torah? What are you talking about? Because I have a Torah also, but my Torah and the Torah of the Torah community is not the same Torah. I almost feel like sometimes we stood on two different Mount Sinai's. And I promised myself, we sit here today, that I was not going to give you the history of Hasidut at all. Meaning, if you don't know who the Hasidim are, look it up on Google. Run a Wikipedia search, get an Encyclopedia Judaica. I came today to discuss the actual wars between these two groups. Because if I had to sit here and define for you who are Hasidim, and what are Hasidim, and where do Hasidim come from, 
what do they believe and how do they evolve? Uh, the Rabbanit could give us a, a 15 week course on Hasidut, and maybe she should, but for right now, I'm not going to get my head involved in defining Hasidim. All I can say loosely is, Rabbi Israel Bashem Tov. Where are my notes? Rabbi Israel Bashem Tov in the 1700s founds a movement, intentionally or unintentionally. There are, there are two different stories of Hasidim. There's a story of what the Hasidim tell you and the story of what actual uh, uh, research and proof text actually tell you. There's a fascinating work I recommend that you read. This book is by a Professor Moshe Rossman called uh, Founder of Hasidism, A Quest for the Historical Baal Shem Tov. This book is of tremendous value. I cannot tell you how important it is. I mentioned Chabad at the beginning. There's an entire section in the back dedicated to the revisionist history of Chabad Jewelry today, uh, rewriting its past in order to create the movement that we all know today as Chabad Lubavitch. Uh, but that's definitely not the history that is found in the history books of that movement or of any of the Hasidim. Uh, there were historians that claimed the Baal Shem Tov never existed because we don't have writings of his. We don't have... Professor Rasman also disagrees with that and finds a balance between who is the Baal Shem Tov that the Hasidim know and who is the Baal Shem Tov that really existed. And I guess you could say that as the Hasidim were born, this movement of Rabbi Salah Baal Shem Tov was born, so there were those who adhered to it and those who automatically opposed it. And so the movement of the Pirushim, or as I will call them, the Mitnagdim, the opponents, are really born the same day that the Hasidim are born. Because before there were Hasidim, they were just the Ashkenazi Jews. And then when the Hasidim created their own faction, inevitably a new denomination was created, and that was those who opposed the Hasidim. The most famous rabbi who opposed Hasidut, perhaps you may know his name, The Vilna Gaon, that's right. The, otherwise, it was the Gra Hagon Rabbi Eliyahu. Rabbi Eliyahu of Vilna. Rabbi Eliyahu of Vilna is the most notable personality who opposed the Hasidim. He was not the only one, but he was perhaps the leader of this large sect of Judaism. And you should know, my, in the Hasidic circles, they always say that the reason why the Lithuanian flag is a horse standing up on his rear legs is because Lithuania is so small that if the horse were to put down his front legs, that he would be in a different country already. There's a certain mentality among uh, Ashkenazi Jews to think there are Lithuanian Jews and then Hasidic Jews. Lithuania is a very small country. And it's impossible to imagine that the Gaon of Vilna was the rabbi of all of Ashkenaz. But it is very likely to accept that just like Sepharad is a small country with Sepharadim all over the world, that through various points in Ashkenazi history, different communities were the capital of Ashkenazi Jewry in the sense of Torah, rabbinic leadership, Bateidin, whatever else it might be. And in this period in time, that rabbi seems to have been the Gaon of Vilna. The reason I keep saying seems, seems to have been or anything else like that is for the reason that much of this history is still being pieced together. Why, what, where? So let's talk about the traditional understandings of where Hasidut comes from and perhaps understanding why there was opposition to Hasidut in the first place. Yes. As a general question, is it okay to accept a Torah that was written under circumstances that we're not fully um, understanding of? What do you mean? Well, for example, a lot of texts you'll say in a drasha on Shabbat, kind of as, a, as an offhanded comment, like, oh, this book might not even be entirely <laughs> Jewish, it might have Christian origins, and, and 
if that's the case, then a lot of the texts that we study from these great rabbis, if we don't know their histories very well, isn't it a huge risk to take what they what is supposedly written by them either? You're making Hugo smile too much. Uh, this question is a very it's a very good question. The Maaseh, let me just tell you, in terms of when it comes to my, my policy, my policy is that in general, the books that I refer to as hard, solid sources are the Tanakh, the Mishnah, the Talmud, the Rambam, and most of the Rishonim, and the Shulchan Aruch. Aside from that, pretty much everything is up in the air as to what you want to accept or not. And I specifically even omitted other books that, that you might think are more classic. And the reason is that in the ways of, of my rabbis, at least, I can tell you that you know, there are certain books of questionable origin. So we accept ideas from there that to us are acceptable. And the ones that are not, are not. And if that sounds heretical, then I'm sure it does to some people. But there are things that we must accept. The Talmud is binding on the whole Jewish people. There are even things in the Talmud, like the Agadah we spoke about, which not all our Geonim believe we have to accept everything written there if we can't understand it. Uh, when I'm talking to you about the history of Hasidim, you have to accept on this premise that both the Hasidim, and the Mitnagdim are both Kabbalists. So at no point in time should anyone paint this story as these are the Kabbalists who are the Hasidim and the anti-Kabbalists who are the Mitnagdim. These are two groups of, the Gaon of Vilna was a Kabbalist also. And they're fighting among themselves. So the premise of accepting this entire conversation is obviously that Kabbalah is okay and then the Kubalim are fine. I mean, this is all part of the premise. I'm working with that premise today. So just let's, let's go forward with that premise. And in terms of the actual text of the rabbis, I'm not casting aspersion on, like, do we know if these rabbis were really Jews? Of course, the Hasidim were, were rabbis, the rabbis were Tamil I'm not here to stick my head on either side of this coin. Rather, just to say that this entire movement, its history as it's told over orally, and the history as it's left behind an imprint in actual history, may be a little bit different from each other. There's the way that we like to view ourselves, and there's the way that we actually are. And I think that sometimes, after many, many years of continuing a narrative, sometimes you, you get in this place where the, the you that you think you are, the history you think you have, it's not actually exactly the way that you were told it, or it was passed off to you. And that's all I'm saying about the origins of Hasidut. There are a number of other books that I could recommend for those who read Hebrew. Uh, this book is an invaluable resource. It's called... Torah Tagra the teachings of the Gaon of Vilna, and the, and the philosophy of Chasidut, Rabbi Tzvi Einfeld. This book is printed by Mossad Rav Kook. Unfortunately, like many books of its genre, it tries to make peace between everybody. Everybody's the same. They weren't really arguing. Everything is wonderful. I don't agree with that premise, but it does shed light on much of the reason for the opposition towards the Hasidic movement. Uh, there's another book. And I, I cannot recommend this enough. It's a heretical work, though. So you're going to, those of you who love Hasidut will hate me for this later. It's in Hebrew and in English, but this one is an English translation. It's called Untold Tales of the Hasidim. Crisis and Discontent in the History of Hasidism by Professor David Asaf. Uh, in here, there are entries about the Hasidic Rebbe who didn't want to be a Rebbe. He didn't even believe in anything, and he just was forced into this position uh, because, you know, his parents made him do it. Uh, there's the stories here about the first Lubavitcher Rebbe son, who, according to Professor David Asaf, and the photocopies of historical documents that are in this book, that actually converted out of the Jewish faith to Christianity, and uh, many other such stories that you might not normally hear elsewhere. Highly recommend this book, even if it's just to keep you real in your study of Hasidut, just to realize that everything is a lot more colorful and vibrant than you might think it actually is. 
My wife has in her library these two books. It's called HaChasidut HaHe'ed Yonah. Ultimately, these two books are meant to prove how the Hasidim won the war. So it's two volumes written by Hasidim. Literally, it means the Hasidim have won. Uh, and that's the whole purpose of this book, is to show that this war is over and the Hasidim have won the war. There are obviously those who beg to differ, and because of that, we have our shiul today. You have to understand that everything in the world happens in context. So history never takes place in a vacuum. And the backdrop of the Hasidic movement, and there are professors who, who adamantly disagree. My wife last night was correcting me on this topic, but nonetheless, this is the traditional rabbinic understanding of the history of Hasidut. That the Hasidim were born into a world in which Kabbalah was, had taken over the world in Shabtai Tzvi last week, the revolution of the Mashiach, the false Mashiach of Shabtai Tzvi. What ends up happening is that the rabbis see the destruction that can happen from charismatic leaders who are teaching the masses Kabbalah, and they decide to pull back no more Kabbalah, no more charismatic leaders, no more. They pull back in this department. All of a sudden, Rabbi Israel Bashem Tov shows up. He claims that an angel is teaching him Torah, that Achiyah Shilani, one of the early prophets, is teaching him Torah. He starts having his Hasidim travel from place to place and do all kinds of things. To many people, this is a movement that could very well resemble another Shabtai Tzvi. It does not help, it does not help that even among the Hasidim, so for example, this book that I copied for you, the Hasidic movement and the Gaon of Vilna, there's an entire chapter dedicated on similarities between the Sabbathian movement of Shabtai Tzvi and the early Hasidim. Things that if, to the untrained Kabbalistic eye might actually seem very much the same. That's one. So the, the nearness of the, the, the fact that Shabtai Tzvi was so recent in the minds of rabbis that it led to people fearing that maybe we're dealing with another messianic movement again, especially since Hasidim are talking about bringing the Mashiach, bringing the redemption, the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov will save the world. Such teachings ultimately scare people. Two, there is a direct threat to the rabbinic establishment by these rogue Hasidim. Ashkenazi Jewry was pretty organized. As, as chaotic as life was in Ashkenaz, full of crusades and pogroms and everything else, it still was intact in the sense of there were rabbis, there were bataydin, there were organized communities, there were central committees and funds. The Hasidim would argue that these committees and rabbis and funds were all corrupt. But at the end of the day, the Hasidim show up, and as Hasidim are famously known for, they didn't pray in grand synagogues or the main sanctuaries. They had little shtiblach, they called them. What are shtibels? Yeah, Hasidim pray anywhere they want. They have little rooms, basements, wherever they, they're going to make a synagogue. So they move into a city. All of a sudden, the chief rabbi to them is a nobody. They bring their own chief rabbi. He's this Hasidic miracle worker. People flock to him from all over the world. He has his own synagogue. He has his own charities. He takes care of his own money. He has his own power. He literally encroaches on someone else's territory. And the less sinister, the more sinister side of the story of Hasidut is not so much I'm afraid of the, the false messianic fervor that this movement will bring, but I'm afraid that these people are taking my job. My monopoly, my stranglehold in the Jewish community is directly in danger by these Hasidic rabbis. And I think that only becomes even more clear when you look at the history of the Ashkenazi rabbinate right before the Baal Shem Tov. So for a while in Europe, there was this group called the Vad Arba Aratzot, this Four Lands Committee, it's called. 
and essentially tried to establish some sort of central rabbinic system in Europe. Whether it worked or not is a shiur for a different time. It doesn't help that this movement was in its final death throes at the beginning of the founding of Hasidut. And that essentially Hasidut comes at a time where the Ashkenazi rabbinate is feeling tremendously vulnerable. That their, their power, their monopoly over the Jewish community is falling apart. And all of a sudden come these miracle workers that they don't, they don't care about us. They don't care about our opinions. They do what they want. They pray how they want. They worship how they want. They run communities. They build communities. They do whatever they want, however they want, whenever they want. And you can imagine like any person who's trying to hold their ground and, and keep their monopoly on business or the Jewish community, whatever you want to call it, they feel threatened. There are other reasons given, but in my mind, these are the two reasons. There's the recent threat of Shabtai Tzvi, it's the memory of Shabtai Tzvi, and it's the direct threat of our finances, our community. These people are coming and they're, they're building tunnels under our homes, under our feet, and soon our entire kingdom will collapse. There obviously is a third element. And the third element is that the Kabbalah that these Hasidim were bringing about, those like the Gaon of Vilna who were Kabbalists themselves didn't agree with on a fundamental level. And there are many, many essays written and books written about the differences in Kabbalah between the Baal Shem Tov and the Gaon of Vilna. And I spent many, many, many months of my life reading these books. And I can tell you one thing. If you were to find a Hasid or a Mitnaged on the street and ask them, what are the three fundamental differences in Kabbalah between the Gaon of Vilna and the Baal Shem Tov? They would not even know what you're talking about let alone be able to explain it. And so even though I believe that there definitely was a religious bend to this, there's a, there's a side of this that is theological, it's a, it's a, it's a clash of, of Kabbalistic outlooks, I find it very hard to accept that that was the motivator to destroying Europe the way it was done between these two movements. How bad did it get? It got pretty bad. It got pretty bad. You had Jews ratting each other out to the non-Jewish authorities. You have different rabbis being put in prison and being tortured. All, all of the, the encouragement of the opposite party, whether the Hasidim or the Mitnagdim, things got so bad that it literally tore families apart. Maybe I'll share with you this story that illustrates just how deep it got. There's a famous anti-Hasidic rabbi known as Rabbi Akiva Eger. Rabbi Akiva Eger wrote many commentaries in the Talmud, Shukhanuch. Rabbi Akiva Eger's son, Rabbi Leibala Eger, left his family to go discover who were these Hasidim. And he decides to travel, this is later on in Hasidic history, so not generation one. He decides to travel to a community of Kotsk, the Kotsk Rebbe, if you heard Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Kotsk, was a radical truth seeker. For him, everything was about truth. And he comes to Kotsk, and he's learning there for six months, and every day he's noticing that the way they learn Talmud here is the same way they learn Talmud by his father's yeshiva. There's nothing so special here, nothing so profound. What is so special by the Hasidim that, is, that is, is a reason to stay and to leave the world that he knows? And so he decides, it's been six months after Yom Kippur, he's going to head back to his family, he's going to leave the world of Hasidut and go back to his parents for Sukkot. And so that Yom Kippur, after Kalnidre, after Arvit, He's sitting around in the Kotzker Berakneset and he's praying or studying. And a group of Kotzker Hasidim, they pull up chairs in front of Rebbe Leibelager and they say, Rebbe Leibelager, why don't you drink a Lachaim? Let's have a Lachaim tonight. They said, you guys crazy? It's a Lachaim tonight? It's Yom Kippurim. You're not allowed to drink on Yom Kippur. 
Labeling her such a meat and I get you're so, so uh, too religious for us. And they take out a bottle of vodka and some shot glasses and they put them down the table. He says, you guys out of your mind? Shot glasses, vodka, Yom Kippurim. Don't you know what says in Shulchan Aruch? You're not allowed to eat on Yom Kippur. Say, yeah, you and your Shulchan Aruch. And they start unscrewing the vodka bottle. He says, are you guys, you guys are, you've lost it. I mean, the Rambam says you can't drink on Yom Kippurim. He says, yeah, yeah, you're the Rambam. Yeah. You're the Rambam. And they, they start uh, pouring each other a glass of uh, vodka. He says, guys, are you, the Talmud, the Talmud says, you're not allowed to, quotes passages in Talmud, you're not allowed to drink on Yom Kippurim. It's okay, label it, please. You and your Talmud, you keep it to yourself. Right now we're having a lachaim. You're ruining the party. He's a guy. He's holding cups. Says, Guys, the Torah. The Torah says you're not allowed to drink any kibbutzim. Ah, the Torah. You Torah. Who cares the Torah? And they're about to lift up the cups and, and make a blessing on the on the vodka. Guys, what about Hashem? Hakadosh Baruch Hu doesn't want you drinking on Yom Kippurim. How, how dare you drink on Yom Kippurim and make Hakadosh Baruch Hu upset? And they smile and say, Ha! Look, label eager. You think that you came here and you didn't learn anything special? You know how many guesses it took you to say that the reason we don't drink on Yom Kippurim is because God told us not to and not because the Shulchan Aruch said not to. He says, you still have a lot to learn over here about the Hasidim. And he ends up staying. And as much as for the Hasidim, the story ends there. Unfortunately, at least the way the story goes, <clears throat> when Rabbi Akiva Eger realized his son was not coming back, he ripped his clothing, his whole family sat Shiva, and for them... Their son was dead to them because he had now left the Jewish faith into the world of Hasidut. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of such stories of somebody's son-in-law or the daughter-in-law or the husband or the brother becoming Hasidim and the family sitting Shiva on each other, not communicating anymore, not talking to them anymore. Shiva like as if they're dead. And in order to understand just how bad things got, I felt it would be important to look at these documents ourselves. And instead of relying on just stories, to read the words that were actually published in those times. I can't read to you everything, but that's why I photocopied as many pages as I could for you. Initially, initially I was going to read for you directly from the original Hebrew documents. And if you want those Hebrew documents, I'm happy to send them to you as a PDF. Uh, but I found in this book from my wife's library a wonderful set of translations of those letters. And I wanted to ask if you can open up the PDF attached to the Zoom invitation. It should say... Um, the Hasidic movement in the Gaon of Vilna by Eliyahu Yehuda Shochet. I think it was a rabbi Shochet. Let's look at the first page of the PDF. It should say chapter 2 at the top. So the edicts and the bottom should say uh, seven, number seven. Do you see that? Very good. This first quote on page seven, the words of a contemporary chronicler, is none other than Solomon Maimon. This book was printed in London in 1954. And he writes the following words about the success of the Hasidic movement already by generation two. So Baal Shem Tov, you have the Megidim Ezrich and the students so a little brief history, the Baal Shem Tov, Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, founds the Hasidic movement. His main disciple is the Magid of Mizrich, and then he has a number of students. So you may know some of them, uh, like the first Lubavitch Rebbe, Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi. He's from the later students of the Magid of Mizrich. The earlier ones are like Rabbi Aharon of Karlin, my wife's Hasidic grand rabbi of the first generation, and so on and so forth. 
He writes the following words, Solomon Maimon. The new sect extended itself over nearly the whole of Poland and then beyond. The heads of the sect sent everywhere emissaries whose duty it was to preach the new doctrine and procure adherents. Pilgrimages were made to holy places where the enlightened leaders of the sect live. Young people forsook parents, wives, and children and went en masse to visit these leaders and hear from their lips the new doctrine. So you see here the success of the movement. You in this very short paragraph also see how families were already being broken up because of the, the fervor that was surrounding this movement, the excitement. This last sentence, young forsaking their parents, wives and children. I think every year around the Rosh Hashanah time, we see pilgrimages to certain rabbis and certain graves and certain places. And we have words of critique. How dare you leave your wife for a holiday? How dare you leave your children for a holiday? And the Hasidim scream, we want our husbands to leave. We want, and they truly mean, we want them to go. We want our husband to go to the Rebbe, to go to... And I think that often when we critique the Hasidim in this way, we don't realize that we're falling into an old trap. The old trap is that Hasidim have trained themselves forever and ever and ever. That there are opponents to Hasidim. It's called the Mitnagdim. And anytime anybody, it doesn't make a difference if you're actually a Mitnaged or not, you echo one of the arguments that has been thrown at Hasidim in the past, even if it's a correct argument, you're going to be lumped into a category of evil people who have opposed them since the beginning. And so this uh, separation from wives and children is not a new thing. There's extensive literature about this in Hasidic history, but it's really not the place for that. I just wanted to point it out. It's not a new argument, and there's a reason why the Hasidim are so upset about it when we invoke these things. Perhaps the first group of Hasidim that come in contact with the Lithuanian Jewish community of Vilna and essentially set the record are none other than the Karliners, my wife's Hasidut. The Karliners, otherwise known as the screaming Hasidim or the shouting Hasidim, because they really scream. Their whole prayer, I don't know if you ever prayed with the Karliners. When they pray, they scream the whole tefillah at the top of their lungs. If you ever walk down the street where the Karliners are, on Avinoam Yelin in Jerusalem, literally from two blocks away, you could still hear them screaming through the windows. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, if, now, if you grow up with that, I'm sure that it's a prayer that you'll never experience somewhere else. And if you didn't grow up with that, it'll probably be the only place in the world you'll ever experience such a prayer. But these Hasidim opened up a synagogue, a small shtibel, in the city of Vilna. In fact, Rav Aaron of Karlin was referred to as the Lithuanian Rebbe. It was from there. That was his uh, stomping grounds. It ended up happening that, as history would have it, the two leaders of this movement, of the local Karliner community in Vilna, were fought tooth and nail by the Gona Vilna. He refers to them as heretics. Rabbi Chaim, who was one of the rabbis of the Karliner synagogue there, says that the Gaon of Vilna is full of lies, his teaching are lies, his faith is a lie, everything about the Gaon of Vilna is a lie. This makes the Bedin, the Vilna rabbinical court, go livid. They call in the parties, they demand from uh, Rabbi Chaim an apology, forgiveness. The Gaon of Vilna accepts his apology, but says that the only way he'll ever receive a, uh, atonement for this evil thing he said about him is if he himself dies, that's the only way. Ultimately, Rav Chaim is excommunicated and sent away from Vilna. Uh, the other rabbi who stuck around with the Hasidim was known as Rabbi Isser. His name will pop up very soon in the writings that we're about to read. Uh, Rav Isser was none other than the tutor of the Gaon of Vilna's children. So it's just important to realize how interconnected these communities are. Um, 
And let's read at the bottom of page 9. A special judicial session was convened. After due deliberation and pronounced the following three-part judgment. One, the writings of the Hasidim were to be burned at the pillory near the entrance of the great synagogue of Vilna on Friday afternoon just prior to the recitation of the Shabbat prayers. Whenever you see people burning books, you should be very scared. But this book burning happens right before Shabbat. In the entrance of the main synagogue, all of the books of the Hasidim are going to be burned in public. Two, in order to permit all Vilna worshippers to be present at the great synagogue of Vilna, no other synagogues were to hold religious services that Shabbat day. Rav Isser was to ascend to the highest step of the almoner of the great synagogue, then the presence of the entire Jewish community confessed to his guilt and recite a formula of repentance prepared by the court. So Rav Isser was forced to go into the local synagogue in Vilna, and he had to, from the most prominent place in the pulpit, ask his atonement, forgiveness, from the Gaon of Vilna and the community of Vilna. Three, letters were to be sent to the principal communities of the region, informing them of the actions being taken against the Hasidim. As strict and harsh as burning their books and banishing their leaders and closing down their synagogues might seem to you, for the Gaon of Vilna that was not enough. You look on page 10, he was livid. And he said that if it was up to him, he would do to them what Eliyahu Hanavi did to the prophets of the Baal. If you're familiar with the story in the Nevi'im, it didn't end well for the prophets of the Baal. This was an actual call to violence. In Rosh Chodesh Iyal, 1772, a letter bearing the signatures of the Gaon of Vilna, Rabbi Shmuel ben Avigdor, the Abedin of Vilna, and 16 Dayanim, was sent to Rabbi Avraham Katanelin Bogan of Brest Litovsk. And they write the following words. Now you should know that all of these letters contain in them deep biting remarks. So the Hasidim are almost never referred to as Hasidim, because they're not pious people. They're always referred to as Hashudim. Uh, suspected people. Chashud is like the word that you would use for a criminal before he actually gets convicted of a crime. Uh, you're assuming that somebody is evil, so you call him a chashud. Uh, instead of a chasid, they call them chashudim. And the name of Rav Isser is never referred to as Rabbi Isser. He's always referred to as Isser, which in Ashkenazi Hebrew would mean a prohibition. Like he himself is a prohibition. And they write the following words. Our brethren in Israel, you are certainly already informed of the tidings whereof our fathers never dreamed that a sect of the suspects, Hashudim, instead of Hasidim, has been formed, who meet together in separate groups and deviate in their prayers from the text valid for the whole people. They are wise men in their own eyes, and wonder workers, and whoever sits among them, even an ignoramus incapable of reciting the Shema Yisrael, immediately upon joining them, comes to merit this world and the next in one hour, meaning it takes no effort to be part of the Hasidim. They are the same who in the middle of the Shemona prayer interject obnoxious alien words of Yiddish in a loud voice, conduct themselves like madmen, and explain their behavior by saying that in their thoughts they soar in the most far off worlds. There's this reputation in the world that only Sephardic rabbis write passionate, biting letters. And that somehow the European Jews were always these cultured, uh, polite people who never, it's, it's such a fallacy, it's not even, <laughs> the study of the Torah is neglected by them entirely. And they do not hesitate constantly to emphasize that one should devote oneself as little as possible to learning Torah and not grieve much over a sin committed. Page 11. Similar ugly deeds on their part have been fully delineated for us and verified by fit and truthful witnesses testifying to their ugly deeds and perverted ways. Owing to our many sins, they have succeeded in leading astray in many locales, the sons of Tzion faithful to Halakha. 
Every day is for them a holiday. Day that they sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens behind one in the midst, eating swine's flesh, and the detestable thing and the mouse shall be consumed together, said the Lord. They receive reward for having departed from the Torah. And they consistently mock the angels of the Lord to desecrate the men of greatness in the presence of ignoramuses. When they pray according to falsified texts, they raise such a din that the walls quake. And they turn over like wheels with the head below and the legs above. By the way, there were early Hasidim that believed that somersaults and standing on their heads seems to have been a practice of theirs. Uh, the mainstream Hasidic rabbis that we're familiar with oppose this practice entirely, but they are bringing a testimony to something that existed in some elements of Hasidut. Yet all this is only a little fraction, only a thousandth part of their disgusting practices. As the aforesaid Hasidim have themselves admitted to us, Praised be God that which has been committed by them has with the help of heaven been brought to light here in our camp. For by the most careful inquiries and investigations, inquiries and investigations, they have had to make a complete confession. Therefore we do now declare to our, our brethren Israel, to those near as well as far, all the heads of the people shall robe themselves in the raiment of zeal, of zeal for the Lord of hosts, to extirpate, to destroy, to outlaw, and to excommunicate them. We here have already, with the help of his name, brought their evil intention to naught. And as here, so should everywhere be torn up by the roots. Do not believe them, even if they raise their voices to implore you. For in their hearts are all seven horrors. So long as they do not make full atonement of their own accord, they should be scattered and driven away, so that not two heretics remain together. For the disbanding of their associations is a boon for the world. This letter is destroy, decimate the Hasidim. It's not just, hey, don't pray with them, we don't like them, they're not part of us, they're not orthodox. They're not. This is wipe them out in their roots, whatever it takes. This is a mitzvah. And really it worked. This letter made it rounds all over Europe. We're talking about 16 Dayanim with the Avbedin and the Gaon of Vilna all signed on this letter. And the main goal was to make sure the Hasidim would not be able to meet or pray in any types of groups. For whatever reason, this letter on Rosh Chodesh didn't do enough. And on the 8th of Iyar, the Gaon of Vilna himself puts out more letters about them. That brings me to page 13 of the PDF in the Brody Cherem. The city of Brody was unique. Because in the city of Brody was a special synagogue called the Brody Kloyes. A cloise, maybe my wife can help me with the exact Yiddish, what a cloise means, but it's a little synagogue, like a little um, society, the, the, the broad society. This Brody society was non-Hasidic Mekubalim, who dressed in white clothing on Shabbat, and they prayed with Kabbalistic Sidurim of the Arizal, and they did all kinds of things, they studied Kabbalah day and night, and they did they, all kinds of different things they did. And so Brody had this illusion of almost like this would be a safe place for Hasidim. But in Brody, it didn't really work that way. Yes? The, the term kloiz is actually derived from a Latin word, claustrum or clausum, which refers to a building or closed complex. Thank you, Rabbani Devar Halevi. I appreciate that. That's, and that's the definition of a kloiz. It just sounds so good as a Yiddish word, you know? Um, so this cherem echoes much of what happened earlier in the Rosh Chodesh cherem. So this is about a few months later. But they add a few more things, including the fact that the Hasidim are doing their own shechita. By the way, until today, if you go buy meat in the grocery store, you might actually see at the bottom of the Heksher will say, Hasidish shechita. You might see this. 
Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? There's probably are many meats that you purchase in different places in the world, and this is part of what the rabbis were lamenting about in Brody. <laughs> I'm telling you that even in San Diego we have meaning it's this far in, in, in the world you'll get listen O holy congregation whereas it is proclaimed throughout the camp of the Hebrews that because of our sins there have arisen in our midst new groups and sects who separate themselves from the community they make new customs institute evil laws throw off the yoke of Torah and prefer a dissolute life these people build altars for themselves so that they may be set apart from the holy congregation. They maintain separate quorums for prayer and do not pray in the regularly appointed synagogues or houses of study. They have changed the order of prayer. They do not recite the Shemar, the Amidah at the prescribed time. They recite a version of the prayers which is different than from the established. In these parts of our ancient Gaonim, they have cast off the heavenly yoke and they have taken leave of eternal life. They spend their days in singing. They scorn the oral law and study only the Kabbalah. They use the Sidur of Dari, that holy man of God, with which they no doubt corrupt. Page 14. Add to this that they use knives for slaughtering, which have been sharpened, sharpened by firing, a practice for which there is no support in all of the Talmud or in any of the interpretations of the law. At the end of the next paragraph, how long will they remain a stumbling block for the house of Israel? How long can we tolerate this wicked group which conjures up new customs? Therefore we do declare the great and awful man with all of the curses and maledictions of the Torah. And some of the things they ban. From this day on, all the synagogues and minanim in our communities are forbidden to introduce any change in the order of the prayers. Likewise, they are prohibited from using the prayer book of the Ari or of any other Kabbalist. We also decree that on pain of excommunication, no one may wear white clothes on the Shabbat and holidays. With the exception of those few men who are known to us and is learned and steeped in the Talmud and the legal literature. Men who fear God and who are occupied with Torah mitzvot. Those are the men of the, the Klois. Whosoever shall go about in white clothes, what will we do to them? Shall be made to stand in the middle of the street, and he will be held up in mockery and ridicule as an example to others. And as for slaughtering knives which are sharpened by firing and not by hand, we warn you that you are forbidden to eat meat slaughtered by these knives. For such slaughtering borders on heresy, and it is not kosher. There's a famous Hasidic rabbi called Rav Shmuel Shmelka of Nicholsburg. Have you heard of him before? Someone could tell me anything about him? By the way, the Sephardim, Chavad Yosef likes to quote him a lot. Rav Shmuel Shmelka of Nicholsburg has a brother, Rav Pinchas Horowitz. Baal Hafla. It's a very esteemed rabbinic family that ultimately are Hasidim, even though they still carry weight in the non-Hasidic community. And he has some sharp words to share. He doesn't understand why they're picking on the Hasidim in Brody. And he writes the following back. He says, who gave you the right to decide which people can be pious and which people cannot? Who lets you decide that some men can wear white on Shabbat and others cannot? And then he goes to war against those rabbis and he says, And to all you who consider yourself rabbis who accept Lashon Hara and you accept all kinds of things that are not true. Who ever heard such a thing? Whoever saw such a thing? 
Hello, bidinei nefashot ekule alma bayina and derishav hakira. When it comes to playing with people's lives, the bedin has to hear actual evidence and has to research the matter truthfully. Velu hiki divrehem ken hu shimi shechad ichta v'al kol heedat iktof. And if you find one Hasid who did something wrong, so about all the Hasidim, you're going to hate them. But if I have to tell you the truth about the opponents of the Hasidut, that all of their words are heaven, they're nothingness. These rabbis, they call darkness light and light darkness. They desecrate Hashem's name in this Torah. As if you find chasidim that they dance and they shake and they in their prayers. Don't you remember that David HaMelech, he danced also in front of Hashem? And it was Michal who opposed him for that in Shemuel, chapter 6, Shemuel Bet. I don't remember about Rabbi Akiva that if you would leave him in one corner of the room, he bowed down so much that he would find himself in the other corner of the room. It says, in which universe would you oppose people who are reinstating traditional Jewish practices? And he has many, many, many harsh words. He says, And these are the minhagim that you're saying your forefathers never heard of them? I have proof that your forefathers did them. What do you mean they didn't hear of them? And he wages his own war against the opponents of the Hasidic movement. If you look on page 15, this is now 1781. It's eight years later almost. It seems the bands are not doing their job. Jews are still running in mass to the Hasidic movement. On page 15, one of the Mithandim writes the following words. Look at the end of that first paragraph. He summarizes here, in the middle. It represents a new way which they have learned from their teacher called Israel Baal Shem, who claims that his teacher was the biblical Achiyah Shiloni, regarding whom he writes, I heard from my teacher. His, Yaakov Yosef's purpose, that's the Toldot, the famous Toldot Yaakov Yosef, or Yaakov Yosef of Polnoye. He says about him, his whole purpose is to entice Israel to walk in the ways of the followers of Baal Shem. But they do not walk in the path of our Holy Torah, the path of our ancient ones. What is the main goal of Hasidim? Their main goal is to destroy the study of Torah, whether it be Talmud or Kabbalah, which they are they, they aver are not at all necessary. He calls his book Bet Yaakov without any approval and it is fit to be burned. Is, again, burning books. These people are leading people away from Judaism. Go with me to page 16. The Gaon of Vilna signs down at this letter, Although it is not my custom to trespass beyond my province, yet I also affix my signature mindful of the saying, When the Torah is being made void, it is the time to act. You should know that there is a very tragic incident that happens here. And that is that somewhere in this point in time, there was a, a plague in which many children had died in Vilna. I think it was in Vilna. And as Jews do, whenever plagues happen or things happen, they start to blame them. Why? What Avera did we do? Which Avera happened? And it doesn't help 
that many rabbis use this plague to tell people the reason why we're being punished is because we didn't fight the Hasidim hard enough. This our sin is that we allow these Hasidim to exist. And so the wars continue in 1781. Here I'm reading to you a piece because it's going to bring up memories of a dear friend of ours from a few shiurim back. Do you remember Rav Tzvi Hirsch Laren? Remember him? In the Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan? We're going to mention him again now. Watch. His fingerprints are everywhere. It's like the person who comes to a crime scene and contaminates everything because they touch everything without gloves. This is Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Laren. In Grodno and Pinsk, they write the following letter on page 16 at the bottom. Today we have had before us a noble letter written in the language of the righteous from the heads of the holy community of Vilna. Together with the two Geonim, the light of the exile, the true Gaon, the divinely pious man, Rabbi Eliyahu, may his light shine forth. And the Rav and Abedin of the aforementioned holy community, concerning the sect of the Hasidim, Yemach Shemam, may their name be blotted out. Who have once again formed themselves into organized group, calling themselves by the name of Hasidim. Their leaders are worthless men, for most of their deeds are confusion. The sages reject them. What's the reason for the sages rejecting them? Because they alter our prayers into the Sephardi version. Listen here. The Hasidim start adopting Kabbalistic customs. These Kabbalistic customs include all kinds of things that Sephardim do, because the Sephardim were influenced by the Kabbalah as well. And so the Hasidim are becoming a little too Sephardic for the taste of the uh, opponents of Hasidut. And I have a letter here in front of me from Rav Tzvi Hirsch Laren, which he wrote in Cheshvan of 1838. Rav Tzvi Hirsch Laren tells a fascinating story about the Mitnagdim, the Pirushim who live in the city of Tzfat. As you know, almost all the cities in Yerushalayim, in Israel at the time were Sephardic, mainly predominantly Sephardic. So when the Ashkenazi Jews came to Israel, many of them considered it proper that they should pray a Sephardic, with a Sephardic Sidur, Sephardic prayers. And writes Svi Hirschler in the following words, says, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story about the early Mitnagdim who came to Tzfat. That they used to pray in the Sephardic Nosach. What happened? What happened to the Perushim, the Mitnagdim in Tzfat? They started praying a Sephardic Nosach. And all of a sudden, people started coming to their synagogue who they didn't want. Which Jews started praying with the Mitnagdim in Tzfat? Imagine you're a Hasidic Jew. You come to Israel with the Baal Shem Tov students, the Tveria, the Tzfat. By the way, the reason why many Hasidim ended up in Tveria is because they were forced out of Tzfat by the uh, non-Hasidic rabbis. That's why there's so much of a Hasidic presence in Tveria and the cemetery, everything else there. What happens is the Chabaniks start to pray with the Mitnagdim. Why do the Chabaniks pray with the students of the Gaon of Vilna? Because in the Sephardic Minyanim, everything is Sephardic. But in the Lithuanian Minyanim, they're praying Sephardic Sidur, so it's pretty reminiscent to the Chabad Sidur. But it's also in the Ashkenazi style, and therefore, they really, it's a nice hybrid for them. And the Chabad Hasidim in mass start praying in the Lithuanian Minyanim. And these Mitnagdim cannot handle the invasion of Chabad into their territory. So they get together, and what do they decide? 
And because these, uh, these Lithuanians wanted the Chabanics to leave them alone, they went back and started praying Nusach Ashkenaz. That way the Chabanics will leave them alone, they wouldn't pray with them anymore. And that's when the Lithuanians in Israel started praying Nusach Ashkenaz. Until then, until then, they were praying the Sephardic Nusach. So Svi Hershleren is recording a unique episode in history in which the Ashkenazim become more Ashkenazi in order to rid themselves of the Hasidim. Turn with me to page 19. In Vilna of 1784, in Shikolov of 1786, there's a rabbi who is the Av Bedin of Pinsk. You should know, my wife's Hasidut also were in Pinsk. Pinsk, Karlin, Stolen. In Pinsk, the Av Bedadin was known by the name of Rabbi Levi Yitzchak. He then was not of Berdichev. But it's the famous Rabbi Levi Yitzchak ben Sarah Sasha of Berdichev. You've heard of him before? He was one of the main rabbis of the Hasidic movement, the famous one who always saw the Jewish people favorably. There are many beautiful stories about Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev. They say once about him that he was walking in the street in Shabbat and he saw a Jewish man, part of the Haskalah, of the early reform movement, smoking on Shabbat. And he saw this Jew and he says, Jew, my dear friend, don't you know that today's Shabbat? He says, of course today's Shabbat. He says, don't you know that it's forbidden to smoke on Shabbat? He says, of course I know. I'll tell you where it says that you're not allowed to light a fire on Shabbat. He says, my dear Jew, don't you know that you're smoking on Shabbat? He says, of course. <laughs> Look, this is my favorite cigarette, Rabbi. And he says, my dear Jew, doesn't it bother you that you're smoking on Shabbat? He says, it doesn't bother me one bit that I'm violating Shabbat. And Rabbi Yitzhak Abedidjev looks towards heaven and says, ah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Mikam Chakisel, who is like your people Israel? And now this guy who's smoking is confused. I mean, why would you look at me and say, who is like your people Israel? And he says, Hashem, look at your children. Even when they break Shabbat, and they know that it's forbidden to smoke on Shabbat, and they know that they still will never lie and say that they don't care. They tell the truth. The Jews are always telling the truth. He doesn't care he's breaking Shabbat. Isn't that amazing how a Jewish person tells the truth even to a rabbi when he's breaking Shabbat? This was a certain personality who always saw things in the positive. It bothers them that Rabbi Levi Yitzhak of Berdichev is the Av Betadin in Pinsk. And so in the middle of page 19, it was desirable that you should take away the crown from the Rav and Gaon. But after we saw that you agreed not to dismiss him, we too confirmed your agreement in the hope he might turn back from his misguided ways and no longer lead the people astray. Maybe he'll do Teshuvah. But if he obstinately refuses, we already have admonished you in our letter and do so now again. We order you, according to the resolution of the province of Lithuania, to remove the crown from the above-mentioned Rav, the Av Bedin of your community, Rav Berdichev. He shall neither teach nor judge, but shall be utterly expelled. Here are rabbis getting to another community who have a chief rabbi, they have an Av Bedin. They like him very much, they, don't, they, they think he's a tzaddik. And this community says if he does not willing to do teshuvah for being part of the Hasidic movement, not only remove him from his position as Av Betadin, but get rid of him, expel him entirely. And it's at this point in time that he becomes Rabbi Levi Yitzhak of Berdichev because he ends up leaving Pinsk and going in that direction. 
Look at the bottom of the page. They that call their leader Rebbe, and he is the chief of sinners in your community and in the holy community of Karlin, and in the other communities under your jurisdiction. Those men must be rooted out, be strong in zealously fighting the battle of the Lord of hosts, and do not rest. Go to war against the Hasidim. Go to war against their rabbis. Make sure that these evil people get thrown out of here. On page 20, this letter goes around Shikalov. Because of our many sins, worthless and wanton men who call themselves Hasidim have deserted the Jewish group and have set up a so-called place of worship for themselves. And they come out to nine protective measures against the Hasidim. Look at the bottom of page 20. The first, we order that a fast and public prayer be instituted on the 25th in the month of Tevet of the current year. That's January 15th of 1787 in all communities, we're fasting because of the sin of the Hasidim. Two, on page 21. All possible measures are to be adopted to put an end to the prayer meetings of the heretics in all the communities, so that they will be deprived of the possibility of common assembly. So there's no live and let live, let them pray, just leave us alone. Here it's we're going to get rid of their synagogues. Three, Careful watch is to be maintained that no one should study their literature and search is to be made with this purpose in mind. Go hunt into the Jews' homes and any literature of Hasidim, confiscate it. When I studied in Yeshiva in Baltimore, it was forbidden to bring books of Hasidut into the Benaminash. You were not allowed to bring them into the sanctuary. So you could say we're hundreds of years after Vilna, but nothing changed. Five, would their ritual slaughterers kill may not be eaten. Six, supervisors to see that all the above-mentioned provisions are carried out and should be appointed in every city. Seven, no one is to shelter any member of the sect. Eight, no member of the above-mentioned sect may bring suit in a Jewish court. No community may permit any of them to hold a position as cantor or rabbi. And it goes without saying that no one of them may teach our children. And nine, it is to be announced in all communities that anyone who knows anything, good or bad, about the Hasidim, must bring his information to the Bidya. Essentially excommunicating the Hasidim entirely and making sure that they would not be considered part of the Jewish people. History repeats itself. And it's amazing to me how Hasidim, who were once the persecuted, today perhaps would write such similar letters about other Jews that are slightly different than them. If you look on page 24, the Gaon of Vilna dies in the year 1797 on Sukkot. In Vilna they say that the streets look like Tisha B'Av even though it was Sukkot. But there are reports that by the Hasidim this day was a day of celebration. Their enemy, the Gaon of Vilna, had died. It was a day to celebrate. I once saw in a book of Hasidim it was an old synagogue that I went to. And in the back of the synagogue, they had a book section. And most of the books were nothing I would read. They had a book from Rabbi Levi Yitzhak Berdichev, the Kedushat Levi. And in the back of the book, they had history, stories of Hasidim. I said, oh, look here. Uh, one of the stories there, I haven't had a, found a copy of this book ever since, was that Rabbi Levi Yitzhak Berdichev, every year on the yard side of the Baal Shem Tov, would make a big meal. And people thought it was distasteful. How can you celebrate the day of your enemy? It just doesn't sound right. And Rabbi Levi Zagabar said the following story, and I'm not a Kabbalist nor a Hasid to, 
confirm or deny such stories, just sharing a story with you. And he said, you know, I was there in the Bedin Shalmana. I was in the heavenly court when the Gona Vilna passed away. So when he passed away, as soon as he entered the heavenly court, all of the gates opened up for him. They said, no trial. He was going to go straight through to Ganeda. Because he was a tzaddik, he was a righteous man. He said, but as soon as he was about to enter Gan Eden, the students of the Baal Shem Tov came out of Gan Eden and blocked his path. And they said to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, this man, you're going to let him into Gan Eden after everything he did to us. And the heavenly court said, everything he did, he intended to save the Jewish people. He did everything L'Shem Shamayim. They said, we don't care L'Shem Shamayim. At the end of the day, because of him, we didn't study properly, we didn't pray properly, our lives were miserable. And the Bedin Shalmada looks at Rabbi Eliyahu of Vilna and says, Rabbi, what do you have to answer for yourself? Says Rabbi David, it's like a that at that moment the Torah scroll came out of heaven and wrapped herself around Rabbi Eliyahu of Vilna. And the Torah tells the heavenly court, a man who dedicated his whole life to me, none of you are going to stop him from getting into Gan Eden. And Rabbi David, it's like a British that I came down from that heavenly tribunal and I took it upon myself that every year, not to celebrate, but to give respect to the Gaon of Vilna on the day of his Yortzeit. That even though the students of the Baal Shem Tov tried to block his entry, that at the end of the day, they let him into Gan Eden. I wanted to show you a few more things on page 27 and 28, and this will end for today. The Gaon of Vilna was not the only one who opposed the Hasidim. Rabbi Cheska Landa of Prague, you heard of him? We know him by a famous book that he wrote. Very good. Nodabi Huda. The Nodabi Huda writes, For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just do walk in them. But Hasidim do stumble therein. And he declared that Rabbi Yaakov Yosef of Polonoya's book, the Todot Yaakov Yosef, should be burned. And in his wrath, he purportedly flung the volume to the earth and trampled it beneath his feet. Rabbi Yaakov ended, the Yavetz. The Yavetz was the famous warrior against the followers of Shabtai Tzvi condemned Hasidism vigorously, as did Reb Joseph Steinhardt of Germany. And they imposed bans of excommunication against Rabbi Natan Adler. Have you heard of Rabbi Natan Adler? Rabbi Nasan Adler was called. Anyone here know who Rabbi Natan Adler was? Someone tell me about the Khatam Sofer. Who was the Khatam Sofer? Very good, very good. Khatam Sofer, and essentially they, they blame him always as being the founder of orthodoxy as we know it today. His rabbi was none other than Rabbi Natan Adler of Frankfurt, Amin. And Rabbi Natan Adler, at a certain point in life, invited a Sephardic Tamid Chacham from Turkey because he believed that Sephardic Jews pronounce Hebrew correctly and he wanted to learn how to pronounce Hebrew like Sephardim. And so he invited this Chacham to his home for three years to teach him how to read Hebrew in the proper way, how to pray according to the Sephardic tradition. And in Frankfurt, he would pray in the Ashkenazi synagogue as the Chazan, as the rabbi of the community. He would pray in a Sephardic accent with the Sephardic Sidu. Chacham Odeh Yosef once used this source because there was an Ashkenazi rabbi in Brebrak who said that Sephardic, uh, Sephardic people cannot pray in Ashkenazi synagogues and their Torahs are not kosher and everything else. He said, if, the, if it was good enough for the rabbi of the Chatam Sofer, it should be good enough for you. Rabbi Natan Adler ultimately was thrown out of uh, Frankfurt because of his involvement in this type of behavior, which reminded too many people of the Hasidim. Rabbi Moshe Chelma of Levov writes on page 28 about the Hasidim that he met or claims to have met. 
And some of them are quite ignorant of any knowledge, having studied neither the mysteries of Kabbalah nor Gemara and legal codes, stripped bare intellectually, wailing aloud, prancing upon the hilltops. And in prayer and supplication, they sing out loud and change voice over and over. Their behavior is strange. They dress in white. They make their hands go to and fro. And they sway like the trees of the forest. And though they have not studied or read books, they call themselves wise and take themselves the title rabbi. Rabbi Israel of Zamosh, we spoke about Zamosh recently. He also had bands in the Hasidim. Rabbi Solomon Shlomo Yitzchak Halperin writes, In our generation a malignant leprosy is flowering that causes them to throw away the oral Torah and a snatch at Kabbalistic books. Some of them don white cloaks, idle around and spend their days smoking tobacco, appoint slaughterers who use sharp slaughtering knives. And a Rabbi David of Makov, he was, grew up a Hasid and ultimately left Hasidu to become a student of the Gaon of Vilna. And he writes the following words about the people who he had grown up with on page 29. The book Zemir Arizim, to cut out all the thorns and thorn bushes that have arisen in the community of the Jews, a sect to call themselves by the name of Hasidim. They became thorns and schismatics. Their righteousness was like a filthy cloth. Their prayers were with thunder and lightning, filled with violence and the treachery of deceivers. They are more rapacious than wolves of night, charlatans and worthless healers, tearing and devouring like locusts. They have changed the order of worship in every word, without reason or cause, without direction, without any path. They have abandoned the Torah, which gives light to those who study it. Therefore I, the young man, who sits in the dust, at the feet of the disciples of the wise, and heeds the authority of the Gaon, our master and our teacher, Eliyahu of blessed memory, arose. And I printed this little book to be a memorial for all generations, so they be not like the Hasidim, a generation of confusion, and that they may teach every man his neighbor to say, Know you the Lord, and they may set for themselves path marks to walk in the ways of our fathers, for they keep faith and with us, and are in covenant with us. The Lord is our King. He will help us in the year 5,558 from creation. The stories go on and on and on. The Mitzanagdim defiling the graves of Hasidic rabbis. Hasidic followers violating the, defiling the graves of, of uh, Mitzanagdik rabbis. There are some communities around today, they won't even mention each other's rabbis with the title rabbi. And I'll tell you the truth is that this war hasn't ended. It has maybe calmed down a little bit. Maybe it's not as, as overt or brazen as it used to be. But anybody who's familiar with the Orthodox Jewish community knows about the Hasidim and those who are not Hasidim. And you may look around and look at all of these different groups and wonder, are they all the same or are they not? When the Sephardic rabbi started coming to Israel, a famous Ashkenazi rabbi, Rabbi Yosef Zundel of Salant, Rabbi Peretz keeps a copy of this letter in his cabinet. He tells the Sephardic rabbis, do not get involved between the Hasidim and the Perugim. These wars are old wars. They will never get along with each other. They have a grudge against each other. They don't even understand why they're still fighting with each other. And you, Sephardim, you don't belong in this conversation. You just accept Tamidei Chamim. Things that are not from Tamidei Chamim. Don't just stay out of it. It's not your war. It's not your battle to fight. And so today I'm going to do the same thing. And I will not tell you. I will not tell you that I don't have a stance 
on many of the things that Hasidut has brought to the table or that Midnagdim have returned to the table. But I will say at the end of the day, this is not the way. This is not the way for people to disagree with each other. This is not the way that our Chachamim disagreed with each other. This rabbinic violence that we've seen already for the last 10 weeks. Violence over and over and over and over again. It doesn't work. It doesn't accomplish anything positive. It doesn't make for any positive change in the world. And so I ask from you, to be aware, to not live in ignorance. Ignorance is bliss. People think, all oh, the Jews know everything is fine, everything is beautiful, everything is perfect. It's not beautiful and it's not perfect. We've learned some painful lessons these last 10 weeks together. We've discussed episodes, we've discussed things that many of us may have not ever studied in depth before. And I don't fool myself to think that I've covered everything I possibly could about the things that we've discussed. When Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin identifies that any type of, of disunity in the Jewish people has within it the potential to undermine everything good that we've built in our whole history, I think he's correct. And I think Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is coming from a place of a genuine Sephardic Chacham who cannot handle seeing the Jewish community be split apart over and over and over and over and fragmented to smaller and smaller and smaller pieces. I agree that conformity is not the answer. In fact, I think that most of these wars are people trying to conform, make each other conform to their beliefs. But Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin has solutions. He has some things he wants to talk about. He wants to discuss some more painful things that are not just historic, some of them that are halachic. In the future Shi'uim, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is going to walk us through the differences between Sephardim and Ashkenazim in, in legal practice and methodology. He's going to walk us into how divided of a people we have become, that we cannot eat with each other, that we cannot drink with each other, that we cannot live with each other. Rabbi Shatov Gagin is setting a stage, and a stage which is fit just in time for Pesach. We may think that all of these wars are behind us, that all of these rabbinic disagreements are things of the past. But it comes from our inability to accept that. So we have new rabbinic disagreements. We are living the next chapter of this book. I would even argue that today it's no longer Bisham Tov Gagin's world. It was a Sephardic and Ashkenazi divide. I think we've divided ourselves a few times over since then. But the problem remains the same. And I'm not making some cheap cliche call for Jewish unity. To the contrary. I think that in order to reach a place of authentic, genuine unity, unity without conformity, we have to be able to have painful conversations about painful things that we normally try to sweep under the rug, to bring those out from under the rug, to deal with them properly, to grab the bull by the horns and to say, there are issues. And even if we don't have exact solutions, but just being willing to admit that there are issues, that there are problems, that there are things dividing us, that's a place to start. It's a worthwhile place to start. And so for some people, this may be counterintuitive. Why focus so much on division if the whole purpose is unity? But I think it's like everything else in life. You know, when, when I was dating my wife, and people were telling us that Hasidim and Sephardim should not meet each other, should not marry each other, should not live with each other, should not build homes together. They will never last. So there's that instinct of they're wrong, they don't know, they have, they, we're, we're two young people in love, we're going to get married. Of course there's that yetzer uh, to just dismiss everything. But then there's the mature part that says, okay, they might be wrong about that we'll never be able to make it work. But let's talk about the things that potentially could be problematic. Let's talk about the place of chasidut in a home that is Sephardic. Let's talk about Sephardic Jewry and how it contradicts with how you grew up. Let's talk about the difference between being raised in New York and the jungle of New York and in the civilized world of San Diego. Let's have, let's have those conversations with each other. 
We have to have, where are we going to send our kids to school? If we go to Eretz Israel, where are we going to pray? To have real conversation, how are we going to handle our parents and dynamics with hosting each other and feeding each other? When I go to Israel, does that mean visiting the stolen Rebbe and getting berachot? Does that mean doing an apshar at the age of three? What does it mean? Because in order to have true unity, you have to be willing to discuss everything that could possibly go wrong along the way. And so much of the Jewish people are not willing to deal with problems. And because they don't deal with problems, they're not ready for it when the problems actually hit. And I think that that's the ma'ala, that's the special thing we have here. Although we're going to take a break for a few weeks. And I would love to hear back from you, because I know that we've done this for a long time. I've tried my best to use Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin as a, as a springboard to bring in all the rabbinic personalities I was going to teach you about anyways. I accept any kind of uh, critique if someone feels like it's too much Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, it's too much of a topic. I'm telling you that we will be switching topics. And if you look at our schedule that's posted in the Google Classroom, you'll see the different topics we are yet to discuss. In my opinion, this is the best way going forward, at least for the coming weeks, maybe through the spring, that to make sure that we cover all of those topics and have all the conversations we should. Nonetheless, even if we don't continue that road, and I truly want to hear from you. So if you're a regular part of the shiul, I want to hear from you. But I will tell you this, that I'm proud of us and I'm proud of the conversations that we've had and the things that we've talked about here, the questions that I get after the shiul, the messages that I get, the emails that we've corresponded with each other. The things that you are willing to talk about with each other, and you're not all the same, the things you're willing to engage with, it takes big people to do that. I'm, I'm allowed to say, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you, but I'm proud of us. I'm proud of us for creating a place in which these conversations could be had. And my only prayer is that it'll be more than 12 or 20 or 50 people that will be able to teach the Jewish people that you can talk about all the things that divide us, all the things that plague us, and still get together once a week to learn Torah together still get together for a Shabbat dinner somewhere, still marry each other and learn with each other and pray with each other and dance with each other and even hate each other sometimes, but that's all part of an experience that we're doing together. And I believe so much in this message and I believe so much in what we're doing here. And I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of the Rabbanit for giving us the opportunity to be learning together almost for a year now. Bezat Hashem, we should grow, we should get stronger and we should only learn more and grow more and become better people, better human beings, better Jews and bring about beautiful things for Am Until then, I'm going to wish you all a Laila Tov.